It's Bullseye. I'm Kevin Ferguson. I'm the producer for the show. Uh, This is our 2021 special bonus content episode. So if you're listening to my voice right now, that means you are a supporter of Maximum Fun. So first things first, thank you so much. Your support is what gives me a job. It's what makes Bullseye possible. Um, Thank you. So this time around, we thought we would, you know, uh, take a peek behind the wizard's curtain into the making of Bullseye, how it started, how we make it, what we do. To do that, I have here with me Jesse Thorne, the show's host. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Kevin. How are you? I'm fair. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We're getting real honest right up top here. (laughs) And I also have uh, Jesus Ambrosio, the uh, show's associate producer. Howdy. How's it going, guys? Good. Thanks for <laughs> faking enthusiasm, Trey. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a lot of questions. Uh, we took to social media to get them submitted. Thank you to everyone who sent us questions. I am concerned at the number of Pokemon-related questions we got. Are you why, you're concerned? You're concerned that this is just going to be a... Uh, uh, Chewy monologuing the entire time. <laughs> You're concerned he'll only have the opportunity to answer one question because he'll so be so exhaustive in his reply. Yes. <laughs> so I guess we'll just get this started. Um, our first question, I believe, comes from Reddit. Uh, the user's name is Sergeant Peepaw. <laughs> cool. <laughs> they write, when you first started Bullseye, How much of your decision-making revolved around simply wanting to have a conversation with your heroes and people you look up to, and has that changed at all? And as a sub-question, they want to know your criteria for choosing an interviewee. Sure. Um, Well, I'll take it back to, I'll presume that this refers to the very start of the show, back when it was called The Sound of Young America. And the short answer to that is... Jordan, Jordan Morris, with whom I do Jordan, Jesse Go, and our friend Gene and I were trying to figure out how to fill an hour. And we had started by like making pre-produced pieces and writing jokes. And we realized that like the total number of jokes we could write in a week added up to like 15 minutes. (laughs) And we were really scared to just talk, which is what we probably should have done. And we ended up interviewing people for that reason. So that that is the real reason that this became an interview show, which is, you know, it's an ignominious beginning, but um, that's the honest truth. But I do think that thematically, for a long time, and probably still to this day out of habit, the big theme of the show was we brought people on that we admired. Um, Later, I brought people on that I admired, and we asked them sort of how and why they got into creating art. And I I think it is perceptive that (laughs) substantially it was less out of an interest in journalism and more out of an interest in ourselves becoming artists of some kind or other. That is where that thread of the show came from, for sure. Um, As time has passed, I mean, I just turned 40, so... To the extent that I'm an artist, I'm I am perhaps I perhaps won't become any more of one. So I have started to over the last ten years or so see 
the job of the show somewhat differently. But I, I do still think of the show's job as being explaining where art comes from rather than telling stories of remarkable lives or capturing the zeitgeist or whatever. As far as what the criteria are for a guest, Kevin, what, what would you say are the criteria for a guest on Bullseye? I think it's first and foremost, someone whose work the host admires and cares about. Yeah. And I think it's also somebody who can take ownership of that work. Right. We were offered a pretty famous actor uh, a few years ago who has been nominated for an Academy Award. And we took this offer very seriously and decided that this person is really good at their job, but not especially interesting behind Mike and just sort of does what's written on the script. And we passed. And maybe that was a mistake, but I still stand by that they probably would not have been a very good interview. Yeah, I think we're in a golden age of television auteurs and everything. But um, for years doing the show, like when when I would do interviews about TV stuff, I had to like convince publicists that I actually wanted to talk to the people who created the shows. <laughs> <laughs> They'd be like, you don't just want to talk to like this third banana on a sitcom? And... I'd be like, it's not that that person isn't good. It's just that it's not really their thing. Like they're a pretty small cog in this machine. Um, and the fact that they're the famous one was sort of <laughs> irrelevant to the discussion as far as I was concerned. Um, I still have a hard time, actors specifically, I still feel like I, I, I have a hard time with um, because their work is so interpretive. Um, I think it would be like interviewing a classical musician, you know, like, classical musicians like a performer their work is ultimately about translating someone else's vision right and that is an incredible skill that not everyone possesses and there's great art in it but it could be it can be a hard thing to be good at talking about or interesting talking about whereas like we've tried to book johann sebastian bach and um we haven't so far but um we did get you know. Sebastian Bach, the heavy metal person, as an alternative. Yeah, we got him. So that's one step closer. That's <laughs> Johann Sebastian Bach's son, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not looking at the Wikipedia right now, but... Chewy, what do you think? Um, I'm pretty sure he is, but yeah. we'll never know. <laughs> Wait, that wasn't what I was following up on. <laughs> Um, so what yeah. are the criteria that they played it played in a ska band in in uh, some somewhere in southern Los Angeles or northern Orange County between two thousand and two thousand seven? I will say it's been kind of cool to have a guest host roll in because um, when it is like a new ska album that's coming out, we know we can throw it to like Jordan Morris because Jesse's probably going to be like, yeah, maybe someone else can take this on. Um, yeah. But yeah, like it's always, it's always going to be someone who the host is going to feel a personal attachment to and like their art because that's, that's what we get to in bullseye conversations, like the creative process and how it all works together. So we have another good question from a person whose username I'm, I think it's just Ragnar with a bunch of extra letters. 
Was there a moment where you became comfortable talking with successful artists? And I'm taking that to mean like it became a thing where like you're doing this because you feel like it's your job and not because, you know, you're just talking to someone you admire. Yeah, I um, I do feel generally pretty comfortable now. I would say the one <laughs> exception is I'm still kind of uncomfortable talking to really good looking people. <laughs> <laughs> Like, uh, male, female, or otherwise, um, like, I just, like, there's always a part of me that if they're, like, a a nine or above, I'm like, what am I doing here? Just shine. (laughs) Um, But, uh, yeah, in terms of, like, in terms of people whose work I admire are great artists and so on and so forth, um, I think just a long time ago... Once I got the skill where I was like, I'm not going to not have something to say, like there's not going to be a silence because I wasn't ready, which was a big fear in the very early days, especially because we were on live. By the time I had gotten over that, which probably took three or four years, Mm -hmm. I had sort of gotten used to the fact that the people who came on our show for good and ill mostly good, but for good and ill, we're just like regular people, you know, like no one ever came on our show. And I was like, wow, this person is a shining golden God. Um, Even if there were people whose work I felt like that about, you know, Mm -hmm. they just were like a a person talking. Um, And when you see them in front of you enough times, you're just like, oh yeah, this is just a person, (laughs) you know, but I'm also like not as reverential as I am of um, people's artworks, I think I'm probably less than average reverential of public personalities. Like, I don't ever remember having like a lot of, um, you know, famous person heroes who were my heroes because I thought the person was so cool. Yeah. I'm going to pivot to a technical question and one that I think everybody has an opinion on here. Sure. What kind of headphones do we all like to use for the production <laughs> process? Chewie, why don't you start? I have some Audio Technicas. Are they the the ATX 50s or whatever from work? I, I believe so, yeah. I, I you know, hate those things. <laughs> I think the way we got those was that <laughs> on slick deals, they were like like $12.99 or something and I just told probably Jennifer was the office manager Jennifer Marmer the producer of uh, Judge John Hodge and I was like just buy 12 of these (laughs) I'm not actually I'm not even using them right now Um, I'm just using some like earbuds some like skull candies so please don't make fun of you guys (laughs) Kevin what do you like? I like to edit if I'm in the office on simple Apple earbuds, because my argument is I figure most of our audience is listening to us on less fancy stuff. So let's get a product that sounds better for that. But I also really like uh, the Sony MDR 7506, which is like the industry standard public radio producer, like you can step on them and throw them in a lake and still use them. 
headphones because they sound good and you can throw them in a lake and they still sound good. I'm wearing those right now, Kevin. I, I don't have your obvious romantic fixation on them, but um, <laughs> I'm wearing those right now. My favorite headphones are, um, well, in the studio, you need headphones that, like the fidelity is not the most important thing, but they do have to be closed enough that you can turn them loud enough that you hear the headphones over the sound of your own voice in your own head. Yeah. So if you want to be able to tell where you are relative to the microphone and how you sound, you will always get the resonances of your voice from your own skull and chest. But you want to have that out, outside input turned up enough that uh, you can tell. Like you can tell what it sounds like to somebody who's not you. Yeah. And in order to turn it up, they have to have a closed enough architecture that they're not leaking sound when they're at that volume. And for God's sake, if you're doing an interview for anything, do not use the Apple earbuds with the like the little microphone on the wire. Uh. <sighs> like <laughs> you will like they will they will every time you shift around there will be this little like <laughs> thing and you'll get like the bleed from the the speakers on the headphones into the microphone because they're so close together and they're open. It's just ugh, it's a nightmare. I'll tell you my actual headphone recommendations if people want headphone recommendations for their own life. Yeah. If if you don't have to worry about closed ears, uh, Grados are really great. Um, definitely recommend those. Uh, there's like a 60 and 80 and a hundred. I can't remember, but they all sound just gorgeous and they're not super expensive. They're in the 50 to $150 range. They're expensive, but not super expensive. And, um, on the cheaper side, there's this famous headphone called the cost Porta pro. Uh, there's a couple versions. There's one with a little over the ear clip. There's one that has a traditional sort of metal headband. And then there's now a Bluetooth version, which I have not used, but, um, uh, the one with the metal headband costs about $30. Maybe it's $40 now. Sounds fantastic. Looks like you're listening to a Walkman in 1984, like an early Walkman. <laughs> it looks so, I love the look of them. <laughs> and they just sound really great. And also, costs will totally, like, I broke a pair and just wrote an email to Cost. This is like 15 years ago. And they were like, uh, and they were like, great. Uh, what's your address? And I'm like, why? And they're like, oh, we were just going to send you another pair. <laughs> Wow. And this was like three years after I bought them for $35. So yeah, I like those cost Porta Pros. And I use, you know, I use Bose's on the airplane just like everybody else. So we got a lot of questions from a lot of different people that basically were like, what is your prep process for doing an interview? And you've talked a little bit about this in like past bonus episodes, but I think what I'm curious about, because your life is a lot different now just like yeah all of our lives are what your prep for interviews is like in 2020 and 2021 yeah so for a long time what i would do is spend a day reading and watching everything i could and that was typically in addition to you know are the guests on the show are off are typically people that i already know a lot about 
because I said, let's book this person or said, yes, we should book that person. Mm -hmm. So I put a lot of time into prep and I pretty much did it all myself. And that was not because I didn't think anyone else was capable, but because, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, for like seven years or whatever, I just literally made the entire show myself while I had another job, you know, so there was no other person to do prep for me or whatever. And well, the first time that became untenable was when we went on tour for the first time. And I say we, uh, this was before Jesus and Kevin's time. Uh, this was with former producers, Julia Smith and Nick White. I realized like when you, when you tour, if you're touring an interview show, you got a different interview every night and most of the day you spend traveling or being exhausted. So you don't have a window really. You have like this one window and it's basically the time in between sound check, which is usually around like four and, uh, you know, takes an hour. Uh, and when the curtain goes up at seven or whatever. And so I just had them print out every article they could find, put them in most interesting to least interesting order, put them in literal manila folders and bring them to the venue. And then I would just go in like a boiler room or whatever, you know, we weren't playing places <laughs> where I had a dressing room for me, yeah. you know? Um, so I just go and go behind a, into a closet, like literally, and just spend that entire time trying to cram as much into my brain, brain as possible and then go out on stage and see what happened. And that actually went okay. And so, yeah, when the, when the pandemic happened, um, my life really got turned upside down. I have three kids and uh, none of them were in school and none of them were able to do online school and, you know, other <laughs> other stuff happened in my family and um, it was just things were really, really rough. And I mean, at first we had to work around me being on the show at all. Yeah. You know, there was a period where Kevin was just figuring out how to get me enough time to record the tracking, you know, the narration parts of the show, the intros and outros and stuff. Um, when that improved a little, we got to the point where we're at right now, which is I have half a day locked out for a bullseye interview. And that means that I have somewhere between, depending on what time of day the actual interview takes place and other factors in my day, like when my wife gets home from taking our preschooler to preschool, uh, the one school that's consistently open right now, um, that means I have like somewhere between one and, and two and a half maybe hours. So now, Jesus and our production fellows, and sometimes Kevin, have been putting together that sort of dossier for me in digital form. And what I like to look at is, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I look at the people at the at the work that we're talking about. You know, whatever they're there to promote or the reason they're doing interviews. Um, you know, watch the movie, read the book as best I can, whatever. Um, but then I spend that time just starting with. I don't know. I mean, Jesus, what what are the what are the rules that I've given you and you've intu intuited about what kind of stuff I want to look at? Um, I'm usually trying to find stuff that 
is not going to be super easy to find. Um, if I try to find a, an article or two that um, like has been covered several times, like the same kind of subject, but then I, I veer away from that because you don't want to be keep reading the same thing over and over. So it's just trying to find the most interesting things that people might not be aware of and like that could possibly be interesting to come up during the, the conversation. Um, so yeah, just anything that uh, that I think might be kind of interesting to you too, um, I will dig into that sort of thing. Um, like when we had uh, Rosie Perez, um, I know we, uh, we might have, uh, we, we found like a really, really old um, article that was like, it was like a profile she did in a magazine. I think it was like Maxim or something, right? Something like that. And yeah. we found like the PDF of it. And like, that was really hard to find. And it took like a couple hours, but it was worth it because we got like some really cool stuff out of that. Yeah, there was an <laughs> yeah, artifact. Really... Oh, go ahead, Kevin. It was an artifact of Rosie Perez at like maybe the height of like actor and do the right thing era Rosie Perez. Yeah, it was like a it was like some a, a big feature promoting white men can't jump or something. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> In like spin or something along those lines. Yeah, I mean, I like to read I like to at least look at like one thing of the person talking so that I have an idea of how they talk. Um, be, so that I can kind of imagine myself talking to them, basically. <laughs> like, uh, I don't want to like get on microphone and be really surprised that they, they talk super slow or they have a really heavy accent or they talk super fast or they just uh, get sound really bored when they talk about this thing or that thing. I just want to have like, even just watching like two minutes of them talking makes me feel a lot more comfortable. Um, like we just had the, uh, jazz musician Shabaka Hutchings on an interview that we recorded earlier today, uh, as we record this. And, um, you know, I knew he was, uh, I know, I knew that he was from Barbados and England and I knew what he looked like, but I had never heard him talk before, um, even being a big fan of his records and stuff. So there was a PBS interview that wasn't the greatest interview, but, um, I was just glad to like be able to see his face move and the sounds come out and then feel comfortable with who, who he is. And I like to hear also like to read interviews with people because it gives me an idea of what parts of their life they're interesting talking about. And also sort of allows me to think about what the kind of next level question I would ask about the superficial questions that people ask are not, not that people shouldn't ask those superficial questions, but if I know the answers to the superficial questions, yeah, I can kind of give those as exposition and then ask the, or, or have them go through those in exposition and then, and then ask a follow-up something that, that sparked, sparked curiosity in my mind about that. So I don't know that that's a, that's about it. So we got another uh, kind of technical question from Josh, Sabert, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, what is the usual amount of time it takes to produce an interview and what's the shortest amount of time you've had to produce something? Um, Jesus, what's the quickest I've asked you to turn around an interview? Uh, usually within a day. So like if I really need to grind into an interview, I can get it done within like three to four hours. 
but that's yeah. like really really speedy uh typically it's we're given about a week to work on it and it, it can take me about two days and what are you looking for when you're cutting jesus yeah just like the most interesting stuff um stuff that um actually because i've been doing a lot more of uh the prep like finding links if i see something has been talked about a bunch i try to kind of avoid that because i'm like oh people probably already know this so i i dig into more of the things that people might not be aware of um and just just getting to the the meat of it really kevin what about the other parts like that's that's how much time goes into cutting the Mm. tape um what goes into booking guests into conceptualizing things (laughs) that sentence really ran out of steam (laughs) got got out of ahead of my skis there but uh what other kind of time goes into the show uh we uh have a bi-weekly meeting is that is that what bi-weekly means every other week we meet every other week uh, to discuss guest ideas that uh, are usually pegged to like a project coming out, like a movie, a record, um, a TV show. And we will run Kevin, those. Let me interject here because this is a topic of much contention over the years on my Twitter and whatnot. The reason that we do stuff pegged to uh, people's projects is not because we think that it's important to talk about the new thing that just came out. Although it may be, many of the new things are really great. um, And that's one of our top determinants, but it's not a be all end all. The reason is that if you are a person who makes stuff, if you're a creative artist of some kind, uh, you clear time in your schedule to talk to people for free uh, because you have something to sell. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That's just the reality of the, of the situation. There are times when we can get people to talk to us outside of that, um, outside of those kind of promotional windows. But it's a favor when they're doing that. Like, yeah, exactly. And we don't, you know, there's no promises about at least no explicit promises about what we're going to talk about. But the, the understanding is, and in fact, we often are careful to say, this is going to be a career spanning interview. This isn't just going to be about this. This is going to be about the holistic person, not just this project. But we do like, we do understand that it would be pretty rude and jerky of us to have somebody on who's got a new movie coming out and not mention the movie. Yeah. Yeah. We're not between two ferns here. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I think that's true. And, you know, as far as booking goes, it's, Sending a lot of obsequious emails to a lot of different uh, reps and publicists and like being a salesperson for the show, sort of Mm -hmm. like, you know, who talking about like what kind of audience they're going to reach if they come on our show, the guests and uh, what kind of interview, you know, other guests have had. Uh, I'll use the clip from big boy from a few years ago where uh we had just wrapped and he was still rolling and he like turns over to tell his assistant that this was a great fucking interview yeah <laughs> that, was, that was pretty awesome i don't know we if didn't that... put that we didn't put that on the air until like a year later and nick white uh who was editing bullseye at the time was like it was like pledge drive or something and we were like 
And Nick was like, like it, he was rolling on his mic. Nick says, he's like, we got to put this in so people can hear this. <laughs> <laughs> I was like embarrassed, but it was so cool. I was like, ah, yeah, okay, fine. Nick, <laughs> you convince me. <laughs> Don't throw me in the briar patch. So a listener with the name Fancy Quabs writes. <laughs> yeah. A very long question, which I'm not going to read the entire thing, but it does mention John Updike in the Paris Review. Boiling it down, the question is, why do we interview so few authors? I could take that one. So we don't interview a lot of authors, especially fiction writers, for a couple of reasons. One is, I don't read that much fiction. So there you go. I laid it on the line. I personally do not read a ton of fiction in my free time. I do read fiction sometimes. I'm not saying that I don't read fiction. And I, it's not like I only read Tom Clancy or something. It's just that I, I'm not reading 75 novels a year uh, so that I know what the best five are. You know? Yeah. So that's level one. Level two is there's a lot of books on public radio. <laughs> I think they're well covered. <laughs> Like that's not to, I have no, that's no shade against anybody else, but I just don't feel like I need to like, I don't feel like there's a hole to fill there. You know yeah. what I mean? I think it's fine. Like that, that person who asked Quasi Quab or whatever his name is, um, uh, they mentioned Fresh Air. It's like, yeah, Fresh Air does three awesome book interviews a week, you know, and great. You know, Maureen Corrigan's on there all the time. Um, it's okay for that not to be our thing. And then, uh, I think the last one is, and this per, this person who asked the question also, I think anticipated this a little bit. It is, it does take a lot of extra time to ingest someone's oeuvre if their oeuvre is, uh, seven novels. Yeah. Like I'm a fast reader, but even reading one book takes a lot of time, you know? <laughs> like it's a day's worth of work just reading the book, never mind thinking about it. Um, and I'm glad to do that, but it's it makes it hard both to um, prep for a particular interview, but also I think even more than that, it makes it hard to have developed enough taste that we can say we're recommending this thing and it's not just a received recommendation based on popular acclamation when we're picking. So like we're a small group of people and we're only reading so many novels. And so like to discriminate between those novels is relatively difficult. So we've talked a little bit about how the show has changed post COVID-19. One particular thing I've wondered about, and this is a question, I guess, first for Jesse is, you know, when we were doing interviews before, if the guest was in LA, we would bring them into the studio and talk with them face to face. And if the guest was not in LA, we would rent a studio for them and hook up to that studio with a phone. And that guest would just be, you know, a disembodied voice on a pretty clear sounding landline. And now we're in this area where it's sort of in between that most of our interviews are cameras on and, you know, recorded at home or cameras on recorded at a studio. Does that feel worse than what we were doing before? 
just the fact that like you're seeing somebody, but they're not there in front of you, I guess. Or like, you know, in the event that the world comes back to normal at some point, like, should we buy a, you know, a TV monitor for our remote <laughs> interviews? That's an interesting question. So I've done it all different kinds of ways, right? Because like for, you know, I did the show out of Santa Cruz for the first seven of its 20-ish years. And, you know, like people think that Terry Gross only does remote interviews. She does a lot of remote interviews because she's in Philadelphia. And the same reason, like most most people in the entertainment industry don't live in Philadelphia. So um, unless they're coming through on book tour or something, uh, they're going to be in New York or LA or Toronto or whatever. Um, there are advantages to not doing it in person, um, which are you don't have to look at the person like a normal human being would. You can like leaf through your papers or whatever. That is nice. And sometimes I do kind of like sit back and close my eyes in a way that I wouldn't if someone was in front of me. It's a lot harder to interrupt someone remotely. And I interrupt people a fair amount, not a huge amount on bullseye, but a fair amount, more than most public radio hosts, certainly. And like, I think that the like never interrupting people style partly comes from, it's just so weird and awkward to interrupt someone remotely. And it just ruins everything every time. So you just kind of have to wait for them to stop no matter what. Like the video conferencing, I mean, I don't mind talking to someone on a screen so much. It's not as good as the in-person. Like the in-person, the biggest advantage to me of the in-person is that you can like show yourself to the person before the interview starts. Like, And I think that is a habit because I did the show out of my house for a long time, my apartment for a long time. And so, I, you know, I would be the one that walked down to the front gate and let them in and brought them up on the elevator and talked to them and they would meet my dog, you know? Yeah. And that helps establish a sort of human connection that will never happen in the formality of an interview. Um, but the, I don't, I like looking at the people's faces and stuff generally. The the biggest thing is that when things go wrong, which they just have consistently throughout this time, I mean, it's just fucked. Yeah. Um, you know, every technological solution we've thrown at this has been somewhat unsuccessful. That is so stressful. Like it is so stressful when shit is going wrong. And there's a part of me that is just like, fuck it, we're doing this over the phone. Have them pick up their home telephone and call us at... <laughs> Every single time, just because I know that the phone is going to work. Yeah. And that's like, I mean, it's even more true on my comedy shows. Like the stress of it possibly not working is so huge because I'm just so trying to focus on doing the interview that when shit is going sideways, other than that, it is like, it makes me want to cry. But the actual interface when it's working fine is totally fine. Like, The other thing is that, you know, I used to do the show from my house for a really long time and it was fine, but I didn't do the show from my house when I had three children in the house Um, and with some really intense needs sometimes. So that also adds a layer of stress because like I just, I truly like, I never know when somebody's just going to barge in the door to my office because as, as well as my wife or whoever you know, my in-laws can try and keep them from doing that. Ultimately, my oldest child is nine, you know, like they're, they're going to do it if they have yeah. it in their head. They're just going to print something out on the printer that's 
four feet away from me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that's happened yet during a bullseye interview, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it definitely happened during a Judge John Audrey. (laughs) It was just pictures, by the way, of Santa Jaws from the movie (laughs) Santa Jaws. It's not like it was like homework. (laughs) So we got uh, a couple of questions about more serious stuff. Um, This one is from uh, Elroy Sheep, and they write... um, would you be willing to talk about what it was like to ask a creator whose work you respect a difficult question like you did in the interview with Robert Webb? Like what moved you to ask the question? What were you expecting? How did you feel about it afterwards? And then they, uh, you know, say some really nice stuff. And another person wrote um, also mentioning the interview with David Letterman. In both of those interviews, we, uh, had uh folks whose work uh jesse and you know the rest of us really admired who had you know in the case of uh, mitchell and webb and robert webb had made a statement that brought a lot of blowback about a uh trans charity in the uk and then made follow-up statements that left a lot more questions than it did answers And in the case Mm -hmm. of David Letterman, it was, you know, his conduct as a host and a boss of a bunch of people when he was still working on The Late Show. Yeah, I would add to that another one that came up in this past year was uh, Robert uh, Robert Carlock and Tina Fey. Um, Mm. Another person, another, I mean, this is a set of people, they're not one person, um, whose work I love, love, love and admire, and I think has problematic elements. Um, And I think that was probably the one that I did the worst job of, frankly, Um, because, (laughs) I mean, because we got the, we booked that interview when my life was at peak maelstrom. Um, And I think I like literally, I was literally crying before I went on microphone about something unrelated to Bullseye. Um, But, uh yeah i in terms of letterman and mitchell and webb like with letterman i mean letterman is my all-time broadcasting hero number one no question um and with all due apologies to terry and ira and former giants play-by-play man hank greenwald um (laughs) there's no (laughs) question And uh, and sometime fill in uh, bullseye host uh, Ray Suarez. Um, Letterman's definitely my all time number one, but also you know I knew that he had cheated on his wife with his assistant, and I knew that he had a long history of not having much, much less, much positive relationship with his staff. Um, I knew that he had a long history of having creative staffs that had almost no diversity in them. Um, and the relationship that he had with his assistant was not the only romantic relationship he had had with a subordinate at work. But also in that case, I felt he was capable of being sincerely reflective about it. So normally when somebody is a jerk, we just try not to book them on the show. If we if they're a jerk and we know they're a jerk, 
there's other fish in the sea is sort of our philosophy. Yeah. And I don't think there's a, a, a journalistic need for us to like rehash that also. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like I, I both don't want to talk about it and don't want to not talk about it. <laughs> you know, if it's been well covered elsewhere, I don't want to book somebody on the show to cover it again. And I also certainly wouldn't want to book somebody on the show and then not cover it if it was actually important. Like I actually believe that if somebody behaves in a fucked up way and doesn't engage in actual atonement, uh, that I don't need to support them, you know? Yeah. Louis C.K. was on the show a number of times and he did some really fucked up stuff that I did not know about until my friend Tig Notaro told me about it. And um, when Tig told me, that was the end of that. Um, so anyway, about this year. So with Letterman, it was stuff that I had been with Faye and Carlock, which I think was the first of those yeah. in the timeline. I did bring those things up, but I, uh, the things that, and nothing, this was also th these, these, their crimes, so to speak, were the least of any of these people, I think. Um, the things they had to answer for. It was mostly about representation and sort of some, some of their shows have done stuff about political correctness that I was not nuts about that kind of thing. Um, but I thought they would have good answers to it. I did a bad job of asking them about it and they had okay answers to it. I don't remember if it even ended up on the air with Letterman. When we booked him, I mean, I don't think we would have booked him if we did not think he was capable of being reflective and offering actual atonement for the things that he had done at work. Um, and in that kind of situation, I don't see it as being a way to stick it to people so much as giving people an opportunity to explain themselves broadly. Um, I don't mean justify their actions, but give context. And if it's something that requires atonement, you know, offer that, offer reflection. And I think Letterman, you know, Letterman who had done some really significant lousy stuff, very clearly talked about what was going on in his life, what his failings were, what his regrets were, what he's done differently more recently, and that he is still a work in progress. And it wasn't, none of it was, like I'd seen him talk a little bit about this stuff elsewhere and I knew, like this isn't PR pablum. This is a really sincere guy who was a real mess, did some really shitty stuff and is doing his best to, to fix it as best as he can. You know, it's not possible to change the past. Um, yeah. Uh, but I felt like he was sincere in his efforts to, to make amends. I mean, like I really believe in amends. Like I grew up going to AA meetings with my dad. So like, I think that you can take responsibility for your actions with Mitchell and Webb. Kevin booked Mitchell and Webb because I mean, I th is it, I think it's fair to say peep show is one of your, Favorite television shows of all time? Yeah, I would say favorite comedy show of all time, for sure, I think. Yeah, like I I remember hearing Kevin talking about Peep Show like when he first got hired. And we didn't hire Kevin because he was a comedy nerd. Um, 
you know, Kevin's interested in comedy, but that's like not his number. Kevin used to be a, a musician. Like uh, comedy is not his number one top thing of all time, the way it is for some people at Max Fun. Um, but Kevin has always lo- really loved Peep Show, and I love Peep Show too. And um, I, you know, Mitchell and Webb look I've watched all of and loved, and you know, they're the they're the Mac, they were the Mac and PC in England, and you know, my. <laughs> one of my closest friends was the PC here in the United States. So uh, I think that's fun. And David Mitchell had been on before. He was on once a long time ago when, when Mitchell and Webb look, I think was running on, uh, on American TV. And he was so great. He was so cool and funny and smart and whatever. But then dot, dot, dot. (laughs) The morning of. The morning of, I happened to post on Twitter what should I ask Mitchell and Webb about? And this was kind of, this was actually before I sat down to prep. This was like at breakfast or something. And I do that because it's a nice way of letting people know what's going on on Bullseye, what's going to come up and and help people feel involved. And, and not so much because I use people's questions, but because people talk about things in certain ways that I might not. So like I get a different kind of perspective on what people are curious about that is useful to me. Mm-hmm. And a couple people said, ask Robert Webb about being a transphobe. And um, I was like, transphobe? What? And that was just a few hours before the interview. And I basically had to call Kevin. We had to figure out what to do. Um, We look for, well, I mean, the first thing we did was look into what was prompting people to say that. Yeah. And he, <clears throat> for context, he, uh, there was an article, uh, that like documented a released recording from a training seminar that this UK charity called mermaids had done. And mermaids is a group that helps advocate and educate for transgender children. And Webb, who I would call an extremely online guy at the time, this was about 2018 said that mermaids sucked and called himself a gender critical feminist and, you know, just kind of inserted himself into this debate and we found that. And then he was asked to follow up about that in a piece with the times of London last year in 2020. And I don't remember the exact quote. We read it to him in the interview, but the sense was he regretted the pushback that he got when he tweeted about it, but not the substance of what he said. Yeah. And to be clear, like, um, he very explicitly in those tweets, in addition to being critical of that organization, aligned himself with a movement at the time uh, which was, you know, the idea of so-called gender critical feminism, um, which was trying to defund that organization because, uh, they objected to what people in that, with that point of view often called transing the verb to trans kids, um, and object to, teenagers getting medical care for, for being trans. And, you know, he had, he had tagged people who were very active in that movement in those tweets. And like, it wasn't like he just, it was, it was, 
it was clearly a whole thing, you might say. Sure. So what I did, honestly, is I said, Kevin, this is too close to me and I will probably spend the entire time I have to prepare for this interview obsessing over that question. Uh, can you draft some questions for me? Which I almost never ask, but I thought, <laughs> worst case scenario, I don't have to use them. But I knew that it would be hard for me to prepare for the rest of the interview uh, if I spent that time preparing for that part of the interview. And that I also still didn't want to not get it right, so to speak. Yeah. And Kevin was kind enough to do that. He did a great job. Kevin used to be, you know, Kevin has a background in, in news as well as in whatever it is that we do. Um, Kevin did a great job preparing some questions with, you know, I mean, doing things that I would have obsessed over, like pulling the exact correct quote from the tweet and that kind of thing, you know? Um, and at that point, what I hoped if if I'm allowed to have a hope here, is that we would have the kind of moment that we had for uh, with talking to Letterman about this stuff, which is that I really like these guys and their work. And there are a lot of people out there who don't know very much about medical care for trans children. Um, I happen to know a fair amount about it because one of my kids is trans. But, you know, even I am not a, you know, I'm not a world expert or anything. I just know about it in the way that you would, you'd know about food allergies if if your kid went into to shock if they touched a peanut. You know what sure. I mean? Like yeah. it's a, it's an important part of my life, just on day to day basis. Um, and so we, I mean, we briefly considered whether to just call off the interview, but I thought if the if it was clear that this person had committed some crime or was a despicable human being. I would say, let's call off the interview. If it was Dustin Diamond and we just found out that he stabbed somebody, I'd say, let's let's call off the interview. But we didn't find out that. We found out things that we wanted to ask about so that we could hear what the answers were. And, you know, that quote that he had given responding to those tweets came in the newspaper that had published the opinion piece that he was reacting to and supporting. And the yeah. opinion piece was pretty misleading. So I just thought, um, well, let's ask. And we did a whole interview first, <laughs> basically. Um, and there were two kind of difficult to talk about things that I wanted to talk about. One of them was um, his pretty significant health scare that led him to, in part, to quit drinking. And one was these these tweets that he'd written. So you can't always ask the most difficult stuff up front because you don't know what the reaction is going to be and you don't want to, you don't want the, sh the, the shit to flow downstream, <laughs> you know, like if you, if, if you think there's a, 30% chance somebody is going to be pissed off at you for asking about something. Well, you ask that last so you can ask the other stuff first. 
And the real reason for that is just because you want to have something at the end. You know? Right, yeah. Um, and I was a little, you know, I was certainly self-conscious about the fact that I was going to ask very difficult questions in addition to doing an interview about comedy that would definitely nece- necessarily, because of what our show is, involve goofing around. I, like, I was concerned both ways, not just that... um not just that it would be surprising for the guests, but that it would also be surprising for the audience. Yeah. Th- that the tone had changed. But there I wasn't going to do the hour on these tweets or these tweets and his illness. So if it wasn't about that specifically, it would be about their career and their career is full of fun and laughs. So that's how we ended up doing it in that context. And in the end... It was immensely difficult to ask those questions of him because I this is not a big part of my job for the reasons that I mentioned. Usually when someone does something that I really object to, I just don't have them on the show. You know? Sean Penn has never been on my show. <laughs> no? Um and also like it was difficult because it became very clear as soon as you brought it up that he did not want to be asked about this. Um, like, you know, we don't have video of that to distribute, but on the video conference call, uh, the look on his face just shifted completely the moment that he realized the topic was coming up. And that made it very, very uncomfortable and difficult. And we ended up running that portion of the conversation uh, basically raw because we didn't want, I mean, primarily because we didn't want to be dissembling. Like we didn't want to pretend that it went more smoothly than it did or more easily than it did. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want, as in asking the question, we wanted to give him the opportunity to represent himself. I mean, that's why at the end of that, I asked him if there was something else he'd like to say about it. It wasn't because I was trying to press him into saying things. It was because I felt that he deserved the opportunity to represent his own point of view because some of the things that he had said previously in public did not necessarily reflect well upon him. And I thought, perhaps he feels differently. Perhaps it was a mistake. Perhaps he was having a bad day. Maybe he was drunk. Maybe, you know, there's a thousand reasons, right? Or maybe he just wants to say that, you know, we shouldn't support the genders of transgender children. You know, there's plenty of people who feel that way. So, yeah, I mean, in answer to those questions about that, it was monumentally difficult. The last thing I wanted to do was trap or ambush anyone, but I also felt that that was monumentally significant and newsworthy, something he had chosen to talk about in public on multiple occasions, something about which there was a lot of question. The, the, the questions had not been, he had not answered the questions that, he, that were brought up by his words. And that is what journalists do. We ask questions and listen to the answers. Yeah. And, you know, we sift through the answers to some extent as well. 
But fundamentally, on an interview show, we're asking questions and listening to the answers. Then once we recorded it, well, for one thing, I I literally didn't stop, stop shaking for three or four hours. But then once we had put it to bed, we went through a lot of drama with the publicists. Um, and, you know, it's not clear. What we said publicly about that is that they asked if if he wanted to redo that portion of the interview, would we be willing to redo it? We said no, because that would be against NPR's ethics code. And they asked if we would want to drop that portion of the interview, and we said no, because um, it was too important. We said we we would be willing to if he wanted to record an addendum, if he felt that like there was something that he needed to say that he didn't have the opportunity to because he was flustered or whatever. We checked in with the ethics people at NPR. There's you know, a couple of folks there who write the NPR journalist handbook and two very nice guys named Jerry and Terry. Shout out to Jerry and Terry. Yeah. Um, we checked in with them, played them the tape. And then we also checked in with a few folks we knew. There's a reporter at NPR who covers gender. And um, I have a, a friend who's a journalist who is himself trans and covers trans issues, not on podcast. Uh, he's a writer, but um, we ran it past those folks just to see how we could frame it, mostly because we did not want to traumatize anyone or trigger anyone's trauma. Obviously, many adult transgender people were not supported by their families and um, as children, and that's very deeply traumatic for them. And we wanted to make sure that everybody who was listening knew what they were getting into and that we offered some resources afterwards for people who needed resources. Yeah. So we ran that by NPR. We ran it by the NPR's politics reporter who covers gender. We ran it by this uh, friend of mine who's a trans man. Um, uh, see what he had to say. Um, and he's, you know, he, part of his beat is covering media about trans people and transgender kids. So um, he knows a lot about it. So all those folks helped us shape how we presented it. And then, you know, we put it out and we made the decision to put it out with less fanfare than we ordinarily would because we only have so much bandwidth in our lives, <laughs> I would say, professional and otherwise. Um, yeah. And it nonetheless was national news in the UK and, you know, led to, for me, a few weeks of sort of unrelenting har harassment on social media. But... I felt comforted while I was, I felt comforted that I felt that we had done our job. Um, and I was also very grateful to have had Kevin's help and Jesus's help too, although I was talking directly to Kevin um, because we were in different places. Sorry, Jesus, if I'm leaving you out of this. Um, and that we like, you know, we did it by the book. We, we got everything right. We actually listened. We did not let obfuscation be the end of the conversation. Um, and we put it out as it was for people to make their own decisions about. Um, and the only context we put on it was a basic context of sensitivity for people who might really be in a life or death situation. Yeah. What's everyone's favorite pie? Thank you, Kevin. The question Lord. comes from uh, 
user Jeremiah Boone, by the way. Hey, Seuss, what's your favorite pie? I just got to say I love all pie. Pie is my favorite thing in the entire world. It's I love pie. For my birthday, I got four pies this year. <laughs> so I will eat apple pie. Oh, yeah. I will eat cherry pie. I will eat uh, boysenberry pie. I love Marie Callender pie. Pie is the best. <laughs> okay, but come on now. If you're going into a place where you are allowed one slice of pie and it's going to be the perfect version of that one slice of pie what are you going to get it's probably going to be like a berry pie probably blueberry let's say blueberry okay yeah i'll accept that answer i would say for me there's a chain in la with a regrettable name called the pie hole Mm -hmm. and they make a a earl gray kind of custard pie Oh wow! With uh, like with a uh, whipped cream on top. Damn, that, that I, I love that pie. I love that, and I love uh, butter pecan. Tea flavored dessert is really. I like to make. I bought this ice cream book, and one of the things in there was making black tea ice cream. Hmm. And if you think of like very similar to Thai tea, different kind of slightly different kind of tea, but mm-hmm. similar flavor. Um, really great. Yeah. What like you? The bitterness. It's sort of like chocolate, where the bitterness and the sweetness are are a wonderful combination with the richness of the the dairy fat. I also love pie. Um, I've never had occasion to eat it from Marie Callender's, but I'll take I'll take your word on that one, Jesus. I'm more of a pie and burger man, Pasadena, California. Uh, not because the pies are especially great. I just love pie and burger. The pies are good, but. I, I'm not saying they're the greatest pies on earth. Uh, I would have said, you know, like if, if, at the end of the day, I'm probably just going to say apple pie. <laughs> um, I, I just think apple pie is really great, but um, I also love berry pie um, and cherry pie. Uh, and cherry pie, I like all the way up and down the quality spectrum the most. Like Even I would like the ones that are basically pure like cornstarch and... Yeah, kind of I'll, I'll enjoy that just as well as I'll eat, eat, enjoy one that actually tastes of cherries. <laughs> <laughs> um, both of those are good to me. Um, but I have to say, recently, I've been thinking a lot about, and it, and I will say that my my mom and my mom's uh, best buddy, Julia, uh, for my 40th birthday, brought me a strawberry rhubarb pie. It was really great uh, because strawberries are in season. Um but I have to say, lately, I've been thinking a lot about how much I like banana cream pie. <laughs> and I think I had just never eaten a banana cream pie until I was like 30 because it's just a joke pie. You know what I mean? Like a banana cream pie is a pie that's <laughs> known really only for being put into people's faces. It's literally the Looney Tunes pie. Like Yes. Yeah. But then I ate some banana cream pie and I was like, dang, this is super good. <laughs> I don't think I had ever had a cream pie, honestly. I was like, this banana cream pie is boss. I'm into this. So if if so, my boring answer is apple pie, but my interesting answer is banana cream. <laughs> um, and I we teased the Pokemon questions. I want to do one of those. Um, this comes from Janelle. <clears throat> Which Pokemon would you want to have with you in real life? Hmm. Joey? Yeah, so my favorite Pokemon, 
Pokemon of all time is uh, Slowpoke, but I gotta say, if I could bring any of them from into the real world. For, for the non-experts, can we describe Slowpoke? Yeah, Slowpoke is like a, a pink salamander slash hippopotamus looking dude. He's like, a, he's a little dopey. He always has like his mouth open and um, yeah. But I, I, even though that's my favorite, I would love to see a Mr. Mime in person because I know that would freak a lot of people out and I would want to see what, what's up with Mr. Mime. See if I could get him to talk. And Mr. Mime is just like, he's a he's a Pokemon that's a mime. Um, that's pretty much it. But they're just, they're very creepy and I'd like to get to know what the deal is with him. Jesus is a guy with 47 Pokemons on your desk. I like that your number one Pokemon related fantasy is just doing a Buckingham Palace guard tourist thing. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to trick the mime one into making noise. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like I want to fly on the wings of a shining Charizard. Or <laughs> it's like, yeah, there's one that doesn't talk, and I think I could get him to make a noise. I feel uh, like if in this world I'm the only person with a live Pokemon, I'm gonna go with the 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 brand leader Pikachu and just sell appearances with him. Hmm. And then quit my job. <laughs> like a, like an Instagram famous pet? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, we're going to like talk with. You'd be at CatCon. Folgers. We're going to talk with like Tesla. Any of them that we can get to give us money. We're, we're, we're doing sponsored content with. My kids went through a really intense Pokemon period at the beginning of uh, COVID lockdown. And it faded relatively soon thereafter it was only lasted a few months but um i don't remember the names of any of the pokemons i'm gonna say snorlax Uh, yeah that's one but like that's one but it's the only one besides pikachu i can think of the name of and shining charizard and this is after i mean i literally spent probably three or four weeks every night the bedtime reading in my house was it the secret garden was it stuart little no it was a pokemon encyclopedia (laughs) where i just read the like height and weight of different pokemons (laughs) to my children i hated it so much (laughs) do they ever kill people uh yeah fucking murderous They're so murderous. Pokemon can die, though, which is kind of sad. Yeah, but um, can they, they murder humans? That that was... Or is it an iRobot situation? <laughs> I'm pretty sure they can, but they don't show that in, in the games or the anime. It would be too scary for kids. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of an after dark Pokemon <laughs> where Snorlax is just on a murder spree. <laughs> All, actually, all the ghost Pokemon will haunt uh, children's dreams, so that's fun. Oh, so cool. there's room yeah. in the yeah, there you go. Christopher Nolan world for for a, a Pokemon dark reboot. Yeah, you know what? Let's give it to Zack Snyder. Let's get four and a half hours of orange and gray Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, I think that about does it. Um, Thank you to uh, Jesse and Jesus for uh, joining us 
for this bonus episode. And, you know, most importantly, thank you, the listener, for supporting Maximum Fun. Jesse, do you want to give us a, a sign off? Yeah. Oh, by the way, a bunch of people asked where this, the, the things in the credits came from. So I'm going to answer that real quick for as, as our credits. Okay. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> Go for it. Great. So, um, the reports on what's going on in MacArthur Park, I think were Kevin's innovation, right, Kevin? Mm-hmm. And that's because we have a big picture window. Um, I mean, basically the whole wall is a window uh, in our building, the American Cement Building in uh, on MacArthur Park in Westlake in Los Angeles. And MacArthur Park, just there's always shit going down. <laughs> It's just never a day passes that there's not stuff happening in MacArthur Park that somebody at a desk is like, oh, oh, look, look, look. <laughs> like, yeah. just be like, this, that pelican's wearing a fish as a hat. Or like, <laughs> is, that guy, is that guy wearing roller skates, but roller skating on his hands? Um, so that was just a natural reaction to that. Um the show is produced by speaking into microphones. Used to be a joke about how we I did not have a producer. <laughs> um, uh, but then when I finally had a producer, which was, you know, let's be clear, like 12 years into the show. <laughs> um, when I finally got a producer, I tried dropping it and people got so mad about it. <laughs> it's like the only <laughs> thing people have ever cared about on the show. I mean, until um, six weeks ago, as discussed. Um so I just kept doing it. And then the uh, all great radio hosts have a signature sign off. I think I use when I was with Public Radio International, we used to have to do two. Every time we went to break, we would say, this is PRI, Public Radio International. And then after a little while, I got bored of doing that. And I asked Nick, my producer, <laughs> if he thought anyone would complain if I just mispronounced it a little. <laughs> and so from then on, I mean, for years... This because you just hear it as a sound, like an absolute, you don't even hear it as words after a while. So, the first time I would just do it, and then the second time we would just try and think of a way that I had not yet slightly mispronounced it. So, I would just say, like, this is PRI, Public Radio International, and then <laughs> Public Radio International. Um, and we just did that every week for years, and then PRI. Uh, we left PRI and PRI went out of business. Um, uh, a lot of good folks at PRI, by the way. Um, but uh, then I kind of put that in as a, put that um, all great radio shows end with a signature sign off. Um, as a, honestly, I was the person I was thinking of, he passed away recently. Uh, was a local sports talk host in the Bay Area named Ralph Barbieri, razor voice Ralph Barbieri, uh, who was a huge personality, had a very unpleasant voice, which is how he got that nickname, and um, uh, a lot of really strong pseudo-intellectual opinions. He had a law degree. Um, he was just a really, he was really a trip. He was great. I mean, he was a really great host and um, was a legend in Bay Area sports talk radio. And then... Um, afternoon drive on the the big sports talk station in San Francisco, which was the second biggest in the country. And uh, he eventually, he got, I believe, Parkinson's, I believe it was Parkinson's, and got fired and ended up suing 
KNBR and Cumulus Media, who owned that station for millions of dollars. His lawyer was Angela Aliotto, who had been a, on the board of supervisors in San Francisco and whose father, Joe Aliotto, was a legendary mayor of San Francisco and won a ton of money and retired and never talked about it again because there was a, um, there was a gag order. Um, but yeah, he was just such a vivid figure of my childhood. Um, and he always signed off his shows, uh, just remember angels fly because they take themselves lightly. And I always thought it was both so sweet and sincere and also so pretentious. (laughs) (laughs) And I just thought it was so great. Like I I think, uh, most people think of me, even if they think of me fondly as a smug jerk. So, uh, I thought of my own fond feelings about another brilliant, uh, smug jerk. (laughs) (laughs) and threw that in there when we dropped the public radio international thing all right that's it made it to the end thanks everybody thanks for supporting max fun thanks everyone thank you maximumfun.org comedy and culture artist owned audience supported